Good morning. My name is Janice Wood. I'm one of the staff pastors here at the Vineyard, and it is my privilege to get to speak God's Word to you today. Um, you know, I don't know about you, I hope that you have a regular habit of reading your Bible in whatever form that that is, but I just wanted to say this morning, I am so thankful that these crazy little things that we call cell phones that we carry around in our pockets contain the entire Word of God as we know it in multiple, multiple translations and helps. It is right there in our pocket, and I hope that you take advantage of the opportunity to be memorizing Scripture and getting used to it. Here's something else I love. I love the fact that every time you change and need to get a new phone because you've busted it or dropped it or cracked the glass or whatever, you get to go pick out one of these. And you get to pick out whatever sort of thing, you know, suits your fancy. Maybe you need a pink cover of some sort. Now, it doesn't really fit because it's not the, the right style. Maybe you need one that, um, you know, is a team color for UK. That's close anyway. Uh, not that you really can root for anybody this year, but let's just pretend, right? All right, so maybe you need a team color of some sort, or maybe you need, you know, a real team color. I don't know if NFL or anybody's going to be playing either this year, but, um, you know, and, and whatever this is, it just kind of reflects your personal style, right? Maybe you need glitter, maybe you need stripes, I don't know. But have you ever noticed that sometimes we're really busy trying to pick a lifestyle and slap it on the back of the Word of God, and it doesn't really fit? Sometimes we're trying to cram the God into a tiny one. Sometimes we're trying to live this lifestyle that is really beyond the scope of what God has invited us to live. And folks, that's kind of what we have been into in this series, is really having some difficult conversations um, about what that means, how we actually live the Word of God out in our life. And there are lots of disagreements about some of those things. So, yes, this has been a serious series. You know, I got to thinking, am I, am I spending more time than usual on this particular message because it's more important than others? Or is it just because I don't want to mess this one up? Right? I don't want to mess this one up. We want to be really close. These, these conversations are not only difficult to hear, they're, they're difficult to give. They're difficult to speak. And we want Jesus' words to be heard, not ours. So I'm just going to invite Jesus to take the wheel this morning. All right? And we're just going to pray for a moment before I get started. Father God, we just come to you today and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to read it, and to allow your Holy Spirit to minister to us. So in this moment, Father, I pray that I would speak your words, not mine, and that your words would go forth and multiply. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in, in getting into this topic, I felt like the, the very best place to go is Jesus. And so just scrolling through the Gospels and just looking at what Jesus did. And I, you know, by the way, Jesus never shied away from tough topics, from dicey discussions and conversations. He wasn't afraid to address any of the things that people typically use as an excuse from loving God, from serving others, or living in community with one another. And oftentimes that's what we do. We use the Word of God as an excuse of how we're going to behave. He wasn't afraid to address any of these topics. Money, corruption, government, immorality, prejudice, as we discussed last week, the outcast, and the forgotten. 
In fact, he pretty often found himself engaged with the teachers of the law and what's something that I like to call stump the rabbi, right? They would come along and they would try to throw something out at him and say, well, what do you have to say about this, Jesus? And he was never afraid to do that. And it didn't scare Jesus, so it shouldn't scare us. One of the topics that I think divides the church today and has conflicted people since the beginning of time is the topic of human sexuality. Now, it's intriguing to me that with all of our modern education and enlightenment that we seem to think that we have finally, after thousands of years, we have finally just now figured this out and we're now treating people the way we should treat people. Friends, gender issues, sexual immorality, same-sex orientation, heterosexual sin has been around and has been documented since the beginning of documents. Since the earliest primary documents that you can go back into antiquity and find, as far back in history as you can go, there has been no new discovery. Our generation has not found a fresh way to sin. We have not. It's been around. Jesus isn't surprised. God is not off his throne wondering, oh, I never knew they would think of that. He's not surprised by anything that we attempt to do or to justify. But I do think that one of the reasons that the church has struggled so much with speaking truth about human sexuality is this. The church has really just been busy trying to keep people from sin. I think we at least have to give the church credit for that, the church at large, right? Because they have been attempting to invite people to Jesus, challenge them to live for him, which is exactly the, the Great Commission. Go, right? Teach, baptize, make disciples. That's the Word of God, Matthew 28. So can we at least come to terms with their intent, even if in terms of sexual sin, it hasn't worked by and large, right? In terms, but that's the intent that the church has always had. In terms of strategy, though, the, the church is doing nothing different than we do in a lot of other areas. You know, our society is pretty convinced, I think we're all in agreement, that drugs are a bad idea right? The, the illegal use and the in, uh, substance abuse has become a problem in our society. So as we approach that, society freely emphasizes the worst effects of addiction and substance abuse. We hold workshops, we hold assemblies, we make posters, we do all the things that we can do in attempt to educate our children and to protect them from substance abuse. We can understand the intent. However, in this effort that I think the church has, has used in terms of trying to uh, keep people from sexual sin in particular, I think the church has overplayed its hand. I think it's overplayed its hand. And I want you to think about this in terms of history. I'm not going to go all the way back. I'm not going to go very far back. But in Western culture alone, let's track the various swings of culture, right? In the, in the late uh, 1800s of the Victorian age, we have a time of repression of, of sexual uh, activity. The church is loud and proud about that and really calling everybody to account. That gave way to the permissiveness of the roaring 1920s where everything was permitted, anything was free, everything could happen, right? To the conservatism, right? You get, get through a couple world wars and we swing back to a conservatism of the 1940s and the 50s, and then that gives way to a new generation when the counterculture um, comes out, and then you have the liberation of the 1960s and the 70s. Folks, there is this up and down swing that the church has attempted to navigate all of these times, high levels of promiscuity and permissiveness and high moments of ultra-Orthodox prohibition and repression. So again, in an effort to keep people from sin, 
and destructive behavior, I think the church has by and large overplayed their hand. And I mean it by this. Instead of offering forgiveness, instead of inviting people to live in relationship with Jesus and to follow his teachings, the, man, the church many times and in too many places has managed to threaten, condemn, and drive people into hiding and defiance of their behavior. I'm here to tell you, we are never going to shame or fear people into purity. We're never going to shame folks into good behavior. No one cares more about sin than Jesus, and Jesus never used that method of getting people to follow him. The abstinence movement certainly tried and failed with that strategy, and in an effort to keep our children from acting out before we were married, we overplayed the dark and dangerous nature of sexuality to keep them from it. We thought if we could pile on enough shame and enough guilt, we could keep our children inside the fence because all we really wanted to do was keep people inside the fence because we know outside the fence is dangerous. So maybe we're taking the wrong tack on this through the years as the church writ large, and rather, I think we need to speak with great clarity that first and foremost, our sexuality as an identity is, and the expression of our sexuality in marriage is a gift. It is a gift, a gift from God, and it is a lens through which we will live and express the rest of our earthly lives. I don't think we can overstate that. So number one, if you're taking notes, sexuality is a gift from God. I'm going, to go, I'm going to be speaking a fair bit out of Genesis. I'll bounce around a little bit. We're going to start in Genesis this morning. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 5, 1 and 2. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind or humanity when they were created. Subpoint: God picks our gender. This is a non-negotiable, folks. God picks our gender. He made male and female, and he blessed them. It is a binary world, friends, one or the other, chosen by God. But hear me out. Your gender, married or not, will frame your life and your identity and your behavior for the rest of your life, and that is an appropriate thing. It is a, it is a, a core framework of who we are. That is appropriate. What is inappropriate is our treatment of people when we choose to restrict each other's potential based on their gender. Let's just, let's just think for a moment how significant gender is. And again, I'm not sure we can possibly overstate this, all right? There would not be an entire department in our universities on gender studies, if, this, if there was not such a huge influence on this and how we live our lives. All right? They don't have a department of study dedicated to hair color, height, or the color of your eyes. They have one dedicated to gender. And rather, many universities have one dedicated to studying. Are you ready for this? This is a quote. The history of oppression and injustice surrounding limits placed on gender. <clears throat> Someone even said in... Um, an important scholastic journal that I've got here. The rise to prominence of gender studies, especially in Western universities after 1990, has been noted as a success of deconstructionism. But ironically, okay, ironically, what they're pointing out, that gender itself is not the problem. What the problem is, is the mistreatment of each other based on gender. 
So treating one as inauthentic um, is, is to make male and female, they, they want to say that male and female is just a, um, a social construct. Now I'm going to go into the weeds for a couple seconds and I'm coming right back out, I promise, okay? Social construct means that it doesn't really exist in reality, but it's only a result of human interaction. Gender only exists because humans agree it exists. I would argue that claiming gender fluidity is also a human construct, and it only exists if we agree that it exists. Social construct as an argument is faulty, all right? So the solution in gender studies is to eliminate gender in order to remove the oppression. But here's the real answer. The answer to confusion on this issue is not to deny that we are male and female. The answer to this is to confront the injustice of how we treat one another. That's what the answer is. And Jesus is the perfect example. He is the perfect example of what it looks like to recognize potential in all people, to confront social injustice toward women in particular and elevate their standing in the room. And he did so without inviting them to check their femininity at the door. And I love that about God. I love that about Jesus. Real quick, just let me give you a few examples. Women with means supported Jesus' ministry financially, Luke chapter 8. Women sat at his feet to learn, Luke chapter 10. Foreign women, outcast women, engaged in conversation, conversion, and proclamation of the gospel, John 4, Matthew 9, Mark 5. Women were the first witnesses and believers of the resurrection, Matthew 28. Women helped establish the early church, Acts 18. Shoot, the whole book of Acts, really. And many of his letters, we can see that. When our, society, when our society is engaged in the heartless condemnation and prejudice against people in regards to their gender, it's not the work of God. Now, society is presenting a lot of, I can't even believe we have to talk about this, but society is presenting so much confusion on this issue. And parents, if you have children who are adolescents right now, you know this. You know that this is being presented to your children with options as if your children can pick their sort of sexual orientation and their gender off of a menu. And they cannot do that. Folks, you can be confused about a lot of things in your life and you will get along just fine. You can be conflicted about whether or not you want blonde hair or brown hair. You can be conflicted about whether you want curly hair or straight hair. You can be conflicted about whether you're feeling like ice cream or a salad today or french fries or the fruit cup. You can be conflicted about a lot of those things, but if you are conflicted on issues of sexuality, it is a confusion like none other. Because sexuality is primarily this gift we got from God that is a framework through which we will live our entire life. And when the enemy has distorted that gift, when your understanding of who you are has been distorted, perhaps by another human being, through the prompting of the enemy to destroy that identity in you, it is a particular type of confusion. So I, I suggest that God's gift to us regarding sexuality is a defining characteristic. It's more defining than any other characteristic you have, more than your creativity, your intellect, your athleticism, or even your ethnicity. It's a determining factor in our lives, and our ability to navigate this is central to our service to God and the kingdom. It is central in our service to God and the kingdom. Subpoint: sexual expression is also a gift from God. 
Our sexuality is a, is a part of our framework, married, unmarried, it does not matter. That is who you are. But sexual expression is also a gift from God. And again, the church at times has been guilty of downplaying this gift, once again, in an effort to keep people from engaging in extramarital activity. Now, here at the Vineyard, I think we have over the years demonstrated that we are great at celebrating marriage. We really are. I think, you know, Joe and I, uh, marriage is one of the things I think we win at. You know, we've told you many times, we're, we're probably better at marriage than we were at parenting and a whole lot of other things. Um, so we're free to, um, to share our celebration of that with you and to give opportunities for people to uh, refresh and renew their marriages through classes that we've given and series that we've done. But listen to me, in the celebration of the gift that God has given us, let us not be cavalier and casual with this gift. There are aspects of our marriage that we honor with privacy. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the church, and he's describing the church, and he uses the analogy of the body, but I think it's significant when we think about that because it's real. This is a creation of God, 1 Corinthians 12, 23 through 24. The parts that we think are less important, we treat with special honor. The private parts aren't shown, but they are treated with special care. The parts that can be shown don't need special care, but God has put together all the parts of the body and he's given more honor to the parts that don't have any. Do you love that? The private parts aren't shown. Wouldn't you love to just make that a screensaver for your teenager's phone? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, the, the, the gospel is here, right? It is true. And it is true in our personal relationships as well. Also, married people, can I say something to you? Not everything in your life and in your marriage is up for public discussion. Not everything is up for public discussion. In our world, privacy is a lost commodity, and we care about that with our, with our credit cards and all the rest of it. But in our conversations, and especially with our friend groups, we honor this gift from God by not engaging in inappropriate discussions. Ephesians 5, 4, again, Paul has to tell the early church this. This isn't new. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather with thanksgiving. At best, when we are with comfortable friends and family and discussion begins to get a little inappropriate, at best, we risk disrespecting one another. At worst, we open ourselves up to inappropriate imagination about someone who isn't our spouse. We guard our words, we need to honor our spouse, and we need to keep our minds at home. And we must watch how things appear. Somebody says, well, you don't know anything. Nothing was happening, it just looked that way. You know what, in this particular uh, arena, when things look amiss, they usually are amiss. And again, we are warned in Scripture to avoid even the appearance of evil. No one sets out to cheat on their spouse or to be inappropriate, but when we let our guard down with our most trusted friends or co-workers, that's when things can go awry. Joe and I have suggested many times in, in the marriage series that we've done that when you want to guard your marriage, when you want to guard your faithfulness with your marriage, the stranger is usually not the issue. The issue is the people you're most comfortable with. It's not uncommon that people have affairs with their most close and trusted friend groups. That's because we let our guard down in those places. Sexual expression is a fabulous gift from God within the confines of marriage, but we must not be casual about it. Here's another thing. 
God's gift of sexual expression is not necessary for our existence. It's necessary for humanity to continue, but you can live a long and happy life without it, right? And, and I think singles need to know this. For Pete's sake, Jesus did. You know, I used to be frustrated that we did not have better, you know, I wish that Jesus had had a marriage on earth so that we would have better examples to pull from when we're teaching people and, and Jesus could be that example to us about how to navigate marriage. But he, maybe it's even more significant that what he really taught us was how to navigate his sexuality in celibacy for the entire lifetime that he was here. That's perhaps a better example of what that means. And let me also just say something to people who are singles. We did a Vineyard University a while back and I got the opportunity to teach in that class. And, and there's so much angst about being single and being single again and, and feeling alone and all the rest of it. And can I just say something that if you really run the numbers, even for someone like me, who has been married 37 years, he usually keeps track of that better than me. And, you know, if, if, the, if God gives us long life, chances are I will outlive him statistically by possibly 15 years, right? Given the 20 years before I got married plus the 15 years after, do you see that maybe almost half of my life will also be single? All of us who are married, most of us will also have to navigate singleness again, either in loss of spouse or for some reason. So we better figure out how to do that and not just think about what it means to be married. Number two, first of all, God gives the gift of sexuality. Number two, God puts boundaries around our sexuality. He puts boundaries around it. The very first thing that God gave mankind in the garden was a boundary. All right? He, after he created the world and made man and woman, he didn't put them just somewhere on the planet. He put them in a specific spot with specific choices. He gave them a spot and he gave them choices. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we know that the garden had a boundary because once Adam and Eve sinned, he banished them from that garden and put an angel there to guard the entrance. Whatever that entrance looked like, there was a clear set boundary. I don't know if it's a fence. I don't know. I mean, read your Bibles, folks. It's good stuff. First five books of the Bible get you right. Or first five chapters of Genesis will get this whole story for you. But don't also neglect the idea that God gave choices. I think sometimes people, um, the world wants to say, well, God's just too black and white. You Christians are just too black and white about everything. There's a lot of gray in the world. Well, you know where the gray is? God put them in the garden and said, listen, here's a whole garden of fruit. Just don't eat that one. One tree, he prohibits them from one single tree, and which one do they want? The one tree. God is a God of choices. And he didn't say, I will not let you choose that. He's just saying, if you do, there will be consequences for the choices you make. God is not a God without options, but God is a God of boundaries. Boundaries are important. If you've done any work with counseling or if you studied that or worked with anyone, um, you're probably familiar with a book by um, 
Charles, uh, no, Henry Cloud and John Townsend called Boundaries, and he's, they've got many subtitles now, but it's a powerful book on the importance of setting personal boundaries in relationships, in the way you behave in the world that make you a better and healthier person. People who can't keep their relationship boundaries in line end up feeling um, out of sorts for a lot of ways. People walk all over them. So here's my point. If we recognize that we all run the risk of hurting ourselves and others by not keeping and maintaining strong relationship boundaries, can we not also come to grips with the fact that we must set appropriate boundaries around things as important as our sexuality? In fact, a boundary is the only thing that will keep us from going past those flags. Boundaries can be seen as either protective or restrictive. That's a perspective. That's how you want to look at it. But in fact, anything of value, anything of value requires a boundary because sin because sin. And let's not fool ourselves. We're all about boundaries when it affects us the way we want, right? We lock our homes. We lock our cars. We fence our yards. We put passwords on our bank accounts. We're not free and easy with that. We put boundaries around the things that we don't want to be challenged in and things that we put value on because boundaries matter. Boundaries matter. When I was a child, I lived on about a five-acre lot. I got to visit it this week. We went up and saw my mother and went to my home place. And uh, I remember this pasture where, as children, we were permitted to pretend that we were camping with no adult supervision, and we were allowed to go out there and create a little campfire. And uh, I remember being the youngest of the crew, so I helped carry sticks or the matches or something. And I remember that one of my older brothers always had to lug a five-gallon bucket of water with us. And I remember the first time I went, I'm like, what's the water for? I don't even understand what this water is for. When we got there, before we lit the first match or the first piece of kindling, my brother would pour water in a big circle all the way around, and then he would light the fire in the middle. And that was our instruction, and we were not to do it any other way. Because fire inside of that circle is unbelievably helpful, and it's enticing and it is warmth, and it brings comfort to our souls in a powerful way. But fire that jumps outside of that boundary is extravagantly, extravagantly destructive. It runs like wildfire, and it destroys everything in its wake. Folks, our sexuality is not too unlike that in terms of its characteristics. You should never be ashamed of setting boundaries around your sexuality. God's boundary for human sexual expression is quite simply this, marriage. Marriage. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, uh, in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's the description of marriage. And the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Sometimes the church has been accused of making too big of a deal about sexual sin, right? As if, as if it's no worse than any other. But you know, down in our deep of our hearts, we know that's not true. We know that's not true. If your child goes to school, if they ever get to go to school again, and they get to have a lunch, and someone steals their lunch right, and comes home and tells you about it, you will be upset about that injustice, but you know that tomorrow is a new day and it will be okay. If your child goes to school and comes home and tells you that someone stole their innocence, you will feel differently about it because you know they will take that wound into adulthood. We know deep in our heart that sin of theft is just as bad as the sin of sexual sin in terms of keeping us from Jesus, but there's an entirely different consequence to these things. 
It is appropriate that God, through the biblical writers, warns us about this in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a, a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul is saying, yes, this sin is different. All sins separate us from God, but this one is particular. It's a big deal. In our society, the idea of living together before marriage has become commonplace. And it's lost a lot of the stigma that it used to carry. And, you know, when Joe and I were young and we held the line on this and we said, this is not God's plan for you, people thought we were novel. The older we get, they're kind of like, oh, you're just so out of touch. You're just a boomer. You just don't get it anymore. I'm telling you, this is not an antiquated notion. God never changed the boundary on this. And we've done enough ministry to see the dangers of this. Because here's the problem. The enemy... Number three, wants to erase all boundaries to create chaos in our life. That's what he does in the garden. That's what he tells Eve. He's like, really? Did God say you really can't eat from this? Did he say, did, did, are you sure he said that? Maybe he's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. Have you seen how tasty this is? Folks, they had a whole orchard. I don't know what was so appealing about that one fruit. Maybe it was like cake fruit or pizza fruit. I don't, I don't even know what it was that was so appealing to them. But this is the enemy attempting to erase the boundaries that God gave us. And the enemy attempts to portray God as unfair. Like with Eve, God gives us clear choices, but the enemy blurs the boundary. The enemy is still trying to blur boundaries in this way. Sex isn't just for marriage. It isn't just for adults. It isn't just by consent. It can be bought and sold. It isn't just for opposite genders. I'm telling you, every gift that God gives, the enemy seeks to destroy, to distort. And if there's any place that the enemy wants to wreck our lives, he will often use the most basic gift and instinct we receive from God and distort it. So in our current society, we're busy attempting to make same-sex orientation normative. There's a group attempting to make adult-child activity normative. There's people trying to make multiple partners normative. Denominations are splitting over these issues. Folks, I'm here to tell you, same-sex relationships are outside of God's plan for humanity or for our best interest. There, I don't have time to go into it. There's Old Testament scripture. There's New Testament scripture. There's Jesus' example. Nowhere in scripture, any place, any time, has God ever used, celebrated, or honored someone living in homosexual activity as someone who was serving God. It is always described and, and written as a deviation of God's plan. But hear me, straight people. Homosexuality is not sinful because you find it personally repulsive. We do not use the Bible to whack people about the things that repulse us, right? We, and, and we don't get credit for things that we have never personally struggled with. When we treat people poorly who are struggling in sin, we withhold God's grace. If we have no capacity for compassion, for those caught in sinful lifestyles and temptations, we are withholding God's grace. You don't get points for avoiding sin you've never been tempted in. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We as a church must offer compassion to those who find themselves outside of God's boundaries. The message of this church has always been, come as you are, but don't stay that way. We have no stones to throw. 
We will walk with anyone who comes in that door and points their feet toward Jesus and seeks their will for, his, for their life. We all need compassion. We all need life change. We all need forgiveness. I love the way Jesus regularly confronted people who were engaged in sexual sin. The woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman who had been living with a man she was not married to and had multiple partners, the woman with a reputation who washed Jesus' feet. In every single case, his response was this, go and sin no more. Go and tell others about me. Your sins are forgiven. He had compassion where others had written people off. He had compassion where others were ready to stone someone. He had compassion and he offered forgiveness because Jesus spoke two things to everyone caught in sexual sin, forgiveness and your future. Forgiveness and your future. Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Second Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Folks, we used to get, uh, when we were first to church here in Madison County, nobody knew what the world of Vineyard was, and we would get calls all the time, and people would, were trying to figure out where we stood on, on issues of theology. Nobody ever asked us about our coffee and donut theology. They asked us regularly, where did we stand on homosexuality? Can I come to your church if I am a homosexual? And I want you to know the answer to that, and it is an unequivocal, yes, you may come. But we will never preach that homosexual practice is inside of God's plan for you. It's simply not, and we cannot change this word. It's not God's desire for us. But we will walk with anyone attempting to follow Jesus and to live according to his teachings. Folks, our history is what our history is. And more times than not, there are complicated pathways that got us where we are today. Complicated pathways that got us where we are today. Where the enemy has offered you a pathway to chaos, Jesus offers compassion. Where the enemy offers you shame, Jesus offers forgiveness and hope. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now, and I pray that we would be a church known for our compassion, that we would be a church that does not throw stones at people who live and have lived a life that we either don't understand, have never been around, have never walked. God, I pray that you would show us how to invite people to have relationship with you with the same grace that you showed so many people when you were here on earth. God, I invite your forgiveness on us where we have judged, where we have come off as judgmental and been unwilling to work with someone caught up in sin. God, I, I ask your forgiveness where we have shamed people into, into hiding and being deceitful about the things that are going on. God, I, I pray forgiveness where we have, have been inappropriate in our married life and, and felt a certain freedom that has also gotten us into trouble. God, I pray that you would, you would work on our hearts and that this would be a place of hope and healing for everyone who walks in the door. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've never been with us before, if you're online, um, know that this is the part of the service that we like to do ministry. 
the, the worship team's going to play another song. And during that time, there is a place for you to get prayer. Now, it does not have to be on the topics that we discussed today. We know there are a lot of things going on in this room. We know that there are, are issues and disease and, and uh, surgeries people are concerned about. And we know that some of you are concerned about your jobs and we're concerned about our educational system. There's a lot of things going on. If you would like to have somebody pray over you, you can make your way out to the rooms where we can social distance and also hear one another out there while the rest of us continue to sing. If you're online, there's a prayer chat button on the website down at the bottom where there's a real live person waiting to pray with you. Let's meet with Jesus this morning.